Looking at what's happening in some other provinces, we know Alberta Premier Jason Kenney is making an announcement a little bit later this afternoon. And we've already heard from Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe saying in that province, COVID-19 measures have outlived their usefulness. He says vaccine passports will not be required any longer as of Monday and indoor masks will be gone at the end of the month. So it's time for us to take a step back in living with COVID and to get to make every effort to get our lives back to normal. It's time for us also to heal the divisions in our communities over vaccination. Those divisions uh, are in our families. They're, they, yes, they're in our communities, but they are across our province and they're across this nation. Mo says that he expects other provinces, as well as the federal government, will follow suit. Let's talk a little bit more about this now with Jason Kindrachuk, Assistant Professor, Canada Research Chair in the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases. Jason, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having the Young Brothers playing the intro. That's always nice. <laughs> we, we, we try to please with the music. <laughs> uh, what, are your, what is your response when you hear uh, this from Premier Mo? We're expecting a similar announcement from Premier Kenny a bit later today. What is your response? Listen, I, I try to be as, uh, as, as leveled as I can in, in my responses and stuff like this. I, I'm frustrated, right? I, I think that, um, yeah, yes, we, we have to figure out how to start to move ahead and certainly where we can start to make changes that, that allow us to, uh, to to get back to some sense of normalcy. But but I think at the same time, we, we've got to be very, very cautious in in how we present it, saying, you know, it's time to get our lives back. Well, you know what? Frankly, the virus doesn't care. The virus is not a conscious being. Um, it has thrown, you know, a bunch of, uh, of right turns at us as, as we've tried to progress down the road of recovery in, in the variants that have been thrown at us. Um, assuming that that is not going to be the case, moving ahead is, I think, somewhat foolhardy. We, we've got to be guarded and, and very cautious in our approach. Yes, we need to move ahead, but let's do it in a way that allows us to gauge where we are in regards to progress and that we're not actually taking one step forward to end up two steps behind. Do you think there is a way to do that if we continue making sure we protect the most vulnerable, such as long-term care facilities, and making sure there are still safety measures in place, much like we've always done when it comes to flu season and respiratory illness season? Is there a way, do you think, to do that and still open up safely with these measures, like we're hearing in Saskatchewan, getting rid of the vaccine passport and the mask mandate? So I think that there is. I think the, the issue with comparing it back to flu season is that, listen, we, we don't necessarily do well each flu season. We actually could do a lot better in regards to vaccine uptake and certainly uh, masking when people are sick um, or, or they're symptomatic would, would certainly help. And, and we've seen a reprieve from that the last few years. Uh, I think when we're thinking about the move ahead, it's about what, what are we doing in regards to surveillance in the background? How, how do we know where we sit in regards to, to viral transmission? Because we, we've seen with Omicron how quickly uh, this particular variant was able to take off. You, if you can at least do some sentinel screening where you're able to say, okay, are we you know, kind of maintaining the, the normal trajectory or, or are we starting to see an escalation as we pull back some of those safety reins, that at least gives you some ability to be able to, to suggest where you are. We know hospitalizations uh, are important, but we also know by the time we're st- starting to see those increases in hospitalization, the, the virus is already running pretty rampant in transmission, and it's hard to get uh, control in that case.
Do you think we separate enough, though, or look at those hospitalizations? And in BC, the latest information has been that it appears that Omicron has peaked. But we also know now that there's a big percentage of people in hospital with COVID that didn't go to the hospital for COVID. They either tested positive, they were asymptomatic, or they contracted it while they were in the hospital. But the reason for being there wasn't because they had COVID-19. And do those numbers tend to skew the numbers up? I don't know that they skew them. I mean, one of the things we have to consider, certainly when we, when we talk about this idea, you know, whether with or, or because of um, COVID is, is the sense that, listen, COVID also exacerbates underlying issues, right? So you can get into this debate of saying, well, is it COVID that exacerbated the issue that ultimately put them in the hospital? And that's what uh, ended up, you know, they ended up being admitted for, um, or, or is COVID just basically a, you know, a, a you know, kind of a benign, um, uh, you know, kind of piggyback onto that condition. That is going to take us some time to get through. Certainly in, you know, in those uh, cases where we see severe comorbidities, we know that COVID can exacerbate some of those issues. So it gets difficult. And, and I think we, we have heard that discussion. That ultimately, if we're seeing extra pressure on the healthcare system uh, above and beyond what we normally see, um, that's a concern for us because it's not just COVID. It's all the other, uh, you know, communicable, non-communicable diseases and diagnostics and, and regular procedures that, that also get impacted by this. Right. And and I want to talk more about that and kind of the those consequences as well. But one of the questions that comes up quite often has to do with vaccination rates. And throughout all of this, we have been told if you get vaccinated, if you do this, if we all work together and do this, this is what's going to get us out of this mess or this is what's going to get us to what we would, would like to call, although I think different people have different definitions of what endemic looks like. But if you look at the numbers in BC, so right now, 93% of eligible people 12 and older have received a first dose. 90.3% have received their second dose. And we're almost at 50% who have received a third dose. So when we look at those numbers, if we're not ready to open up the province and take away the restrictions at 90 plus percent, when do we? Well, it's a good question, right? And, and, and listen, one of the things I'll say about endemic diseases, we got to consider that some malaria and Lassa virus are also endemic, and, and smallpox is endemic as well, right? So this idea of endemic disease being mild um, is not necessarily true. You can still have high burden of, uh, of disease and hospitalizations with, with an endemic disease. Um, one of the things we have to consider with, with vaccination, listen, when we dealt with alpha and delta and the ancestral strain of the virus, two doses was getting us to where we needed to be. Omicron emerged. We don't specifically know where it emerged from. But it changed the, the playing field because now the virus had an ability to get around those early uh, antibody responses. So now that two doses does not actually give you the same amount of protection from infection. Still looks pretty good in regards to severe disease, but it has put us a little bit behind. So now the third dose becomes important. And I think, you know, we, we get a lot of people saying, well, you know, it, the vaccines were always supposed to be our way through this. Well, yeah, but the virus changed. And if we're not being fluid in, in how we shift with, with the virus, then we, we are going to continue to play catch up. Uh, and this thing is going to rage on for, for a while yet. Right. And, and then but do you understand that, I guess, the frustration with people in that we're never going to get to 100 percent? It's just not going to happen. Yeah. So does that mean we're always going to have these restrictions or does this mean we're always going to have something or live under the threat that government is going to bring in restrictions or bring them back? 
Yeah, it's, it's a good question, right? I, I think what we're seeing certainly is, is we get, you know, not only people vaccinated, but also, unfortunately, people that are infected or, or people that have been vaccinated and got exposed to the virus. We, we see a bump up in immunity in, in, in our communities, right? So we, we do get some amount of, of immunity that allows us to not only prevent long-term illness, but also to actually suppress uh, to transmission to some extent. So I think we, we will get there. Now, whether or not we reach ultimately herd immunity, I, I don't, we can't think within that. It's about how do we control transmission so we don't see things escalating out of control. Um, and I think that's a bigger question is that, listen, we, there's no timeline, um, but we have to be supportive in doing this. If, if we rush ahead and we open things up, we saw that with Delta, certainly in the summertime, where if you backed off restrictions too quickly, um, cases surge quickly. Uh, and, we, and that's where we don't want to end up. So how do we do this cautiously uh, and expediently while also ensuring that, that people are getting um, some of the, the normal uh, you know, parts of their life back? Because to be frank, I, listen, I want that as well because I'm tired of living like this too. But, but I don't want to see us get back uh, to where we have high case rates and, and now we have to worry about hospitalizations again. All right. And just one other question and, and on something you mentioned about other procedures that are postponed. We've certainly seen that happen here and cancellations of procedures. Do you think we are focusing enough as well or talking enough about the negative consequences? And that's the strain on mental health. It's the strain on yeah. kids, on, on, on the harms that are also being caused by these restrictions. Well, we got to talk uh, certainly about, about the harmful restrictions, but also the harms of, of the pandemic. I mean, frankly, listen, I, I was in West Africa during the bull epidemic. Uh, we, we do work right now with communities uh, of people that, that are long-term survivors and still have long-term uh, mental health and physical uh, health impacts based on, on surviving from, from that disease. So we know that certainly with other infectious diseases, you need to have supports in place. For, for those people that recover as well as obviously in, in the, the position that we're in right now. So I think a lot of this is going to be really, we've got to figure out on all fronts how to get people the support they need and, and also how to be uh, very aggressive in ensuring that, uh, that, that nobody gets left behind as, as we move ahead and, and, and out of COVID-19 when that actually happens. All right. Jason Kindrachek, thank you so much. As always, great to have you on the program. I do appreciate you making the time for us today. Hey, thanks for having me on. We are going to take a little break from talking about COVID-19 and mandates and the lifting of restrictions. We will hear more about that a bit later on this afternoon. But right now, shifting focus a little bit, the Vancouver Park Board looking to extend its alcohol in parks pilot program. You might recall this first took place between July and October of last year. That was to allow drinking in designated areas at 22 city parks. Well, joining us to talk more about what is going to be happening with this next is John Cooper, NPA Park Board Commissioner. John Cooper also will be running for mayor in the next civic election. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, always a pleasure to be here. So talk a bit. So what exactly has been approved about extending this pilot project? Well, that the uh, the staff come back and implement a second uh, pilot. And one of the things that was missing from the last one, I had brought forward a more, uh, um, uh, an amendment because I wanted to see us uh, have a test of our some of our concessions, because not everybody necessarily is going to, you know, have out have uh, a beer or wine with them, and they might uh, want to get something cold from a concession. So I'd like to see that as part of this next pilot and see how that uh, how that works out, and it's also a source of revenue uh, for the park board. 
All right. Was it discussed the first time around and it just didn't go anywhere, or is this kind of a new idea to take a look at? No, it, it was part of a, it was accepted uh, uh, back in 2020. Uh, unfortunately, because it took a while for the provincial government to give us all the, the approvals, we didn't have time to get that work done. So now there's a commitment from staff to try and work on that for this pilot. So that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Uh, do you have any concerns about that, given that anybody who's purchased wine or beer at a grocery store where there's now a kind of the store in the store scenario, if you happen to go to a till where the person at the till is not 19, everything comes to a grinding halt and they have to call somebody over who's 19 to run it through the till. Could that be an issue at concession stands if the person working at the concession isn't 19? Well, I think we have a range of uh, folks that work at the concessions, and our concessions are pretty well run, so I don't anticipate that being a a problem, no. All right. So how did things go last year then with the pilot project? Did you get feedback on what worked? We got a lot of feedback, and most of it was was quite positive, and uh, I've got some of it uh, here. Rangers, our park rangers reported that 94% of visits, everybody was respectful and no one needed to be reminded. You know, most people are pretty... uh, pretty good we live in a pretty civil society most of the most of the time and uh, the VPD showed no increases in the number of alcohol related calls as a result of the of the pilot so and and from the general survey we learned that about 86 percent of those people that participated in the survey were supportive of uh, of drinking in parks and they were at designated sections of those parks as part of that pilot project going ahead then are they going to be in the same areas uh, I think that'll be adjusted a bit. There was some concerns around, it was a little sometimes unclear uh, where the boundaries were, so clarification of the area boundaries uh, so that people understand, you know, where it's okay and where it's not. And I, I think, you know, we can improve on that, and, and that'll, that'll help us get better information as well. Uh, so when you talk about the VPD, that they didn't have any increased alcohol-related calls. Is there information to show that while people were adhering to the pilot project rules and staying within the boundaries, is there any feedback or information that shows there were people drinking alcohol or consuming alcohol outside the boundaries that were ticketed? Um, That wasn't part of, of the survey, so I don't have that information, but certainly you know, that is an ongoing thing that happens, uh, you know, across the city. I mean, we, we there's always there's always folks that aren't going to obey the rules, and we see that in, in all kinds of instances, whether it be, uh, you know, uh, people using drugs or whatever it might be in a public place. So, um, you know, it, it's we're trying to work with people. I like to, you know, like to take the, the attitude that, uh, you know, people are adults, and most people want to want to do the right thing. And that was generally what we what we found, and that's what our staff reported back to us. Right. And but I, I guess I mean you would agree as well, wouldn't you, that even though I think this project or this pilot project has a lot of support, it's not as though suddenly people who are spending the evenings on the beach, especially during the pandemic when people are getting outside more and maybe didn't have their own outdoor space, it's not as though we're we're where we, we have the wool over our eyes thinking this is only happening in the designated areas. I mean people are responsible and there are people who are drinking alcoholic beverages on the beaches all the time everywhere. That's that's everybody. Everybody knows that that's a fact. So given that and again and again, I get that you can't just, I suppose, open it up and say this is fine. But then what what is the point really of a project like this when it's a a behavior that's already happening? 
Well, I think it's about, some of it's about education. For instance, you know, we set these areas, they're not near playgrounds where kids are playing. And, and even, even you'll, you'll find that most people are going to re, try and be respectful of, of small children or families and that sort of thing. So, you know, there, there is obviously, there's always going to be some people that aren't going to want to, aren't going to want to follow the rules. But by and large, what we found was um, not a lot of not a lot of problems. There was some some instances of more wasted littering. Uh, there was some counts of you know folks being loud and obnoxious. But in the overall scheme and 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 the way the information came back to us, it was generally generally positive. And um, so I think a, a new pilot is going to give us more information, so we can you know do this in a way that people are happy about and and you know, they're respecting other park users, and that's really the key. Uh, You mentioned garbage and recycling left on the beaches and in parks, and I know, myself included, it is... It's just you got to shake your head when you see it, and it does happen all the time. And I think that that predates the pilot project for sure. There are just some people that, for whatever reason, think it's okay to leave their garbage behind. I guess assume that some garbage fairy is going to come and pick up after them. Would it be better, do you think, to focus more on littering, more on glass on the beaches and the parks, more on those types of issues? Yeah. Well, that was one of the things that came from the survey. So there was, uh, you know. Uh, People wanted more more garbage and recycling totes, and and staff are taking um, that that information back, and they'll make sure they do that in, in the new pilot. So, you know, we're learning about it, and um, you know, there's some areas that people consider quite uh, ecologically sensitive, so we don't want to have it there. You know, there's uh, lots of considerations that. Uh, so we want some clarity on the on the on the pilot site boundaries, and that sort of thing to make it more clear to people, and I think better signage so that. It's just more clear, right? So, is it your uh, the, your thought that this project, the pilot project, then again, so it ran last year from was it July twelfth to October eleventh? That we'd be looking at the same time frame. Uh, probably, I don't know the date because staff haven't come back with that yet. But I would suspect we'll probably start it a little bit earlier. The reason it started later is we only got the approval from the province, I believe, in um, June of twenty twenty one so that the, the, the rules were amended by the province to allow us to do this. That now they've been amended, so there isn't that obstacle in the way. So I would, I would expect it would be earlier, earlier in the summer, perhaps late spring. Okay, because even uh, looking back to this past weekend, Sunday was an absolutely beautiful day, and I dare say there were people out having picnics and perhaps an alcoholic beverage then. There, I'm sure there was, <laughs> and uh, I, I can tell you, uh, I was on my deck and I did partake in alcoholic beverage. It was quite nice in the sun. So, uh, you know, everybody's dying to get back outside and uh, I think we're all getting tired. So, um, you know, hopefully we'll be able to do it a little more safely uh, uh, this summer. Uh, Do you see it potentially then becoming a permanent thing in that if it works for the spring to the fall, uh, the spring into October, then why not leave it open? And then if somebody does want to bundle up on a a brisk day in February and head down to the beach, uh, they can do so without fearing that a bylaw officer or a park ranger is going to be tapping on their shoulder. I I think we're probably heading in that direction, but I can never presuppose the will of the board. There are seven commissioners and there's... uh, uh, three different parties, and uh, on this one we seem to be aligned. So um, I would expect that may be the case, but I, like I say, I don't, I can't tell you that at this point. All right, John Cooper, we will leave it there for today. But thanks so much for joining us to talk about this. Thank you very much. Have a great day. 
Thanks for being with us on this Tuesday afternoon. Well, this is a story you might have seen it yesterday on Global News. A BC woman is speaking out about an experience she had with a virtual doctor's appointment. It was an appointment through the TELUS Health app, something a lot of British Columbians are using. And Carly McGee joins us now to talk a little bit more about what happened. Carly, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Jill. For people that haven't heard the story or seen the story on our website, can you kind of start at the beginning and tell us how things unfolded? Definitely. Um, so on Sunday, I had a telehealth appointment via the app. And, you know, it took about a week and a half to get the appointment. So it definitely slipped my mind. Um, I was in the middle of a workout at home riding my spin bike uh, when my phone rang and I realized I had the appointment. Um I jumped off my spin bike and answered the call. I let the doctor know, you know, I'm so sorry. I was just in the middle of a workout, um, but I'm free to talk. I'm just at home. And he said, if you're not in a private place or covered up, I cannot speak to you. And I said, well, I am in a private place. I'm, I'm in my home office and uh, I am covered up, you know, from FaceTime. Uh, it's from the chest up. It looks like I'm wearing a tank top. Um, and he continued to tell me that I wasn't covered up enough. Uh, and, you know, from there, I was kind of confused. I said, well, I'm, I'm covered up. Like, I'm, I'm wearing a sports bra and kind of panned out even further. And uh, that's when he proceeded to kind of double down on me and say, well, um, you're not covered up enough. And would you go out in public looking like that? Would you go to an in-person doctor's appointment like that? And, you know, at that point, I assured him, I definitely would. I definitely have before, um, you know, and it's my right to dress however I want. And what I'm wearing shouldn't really matter. Um And that's when he kind of told me that I wasn't covered up enough for him to conduct the appointment. And I, um, you know, I said, you know, maybe I shouldn't be meeting with someone who is pushing those values on someone when they're seeking medical advice. And he proceeded to hang up on me uh, before I could, you know, say anything else. So it's less about what I was wearing and more about his perception of what covered up enough men and what his definition of appropriate was for a virtual doctor's appointment. Hmm. And uh, there's a few things there. Just just to go back to to what you were wearing, and I, I get what you're saying there, but you also posted a, f- a photo on social media, and it's not as though uh, you showed up not wearing a top or something was exposed. I mean, you couldn't even have known if you were just looking at you in the way you were framed in that shot. Uh, anybody looking at that, my guess is, would have thought, oh, she's just wearing a tank top. Yeah, I mean, after it kind of happened, I I just kind of snapped a selfie just because just I was kind of shocked by the situation and walked into the next room. And my husband, you know, shared the same sentiment from, from a FaceTime call. It looked like I was wearing a tank top. Um, I'll be the first to admit I'm a bustier girl. And so it kind of leaves me to wonder if I had a smaller chest, uh, would I have been greeted with the same hostility towards my decent appearance or indecent appearance? And when you say he hung up on you, what was his tone or how did you interpret his tone or his demeanor before doing that? Um, He definitely was being very forceful with in in telling me I wasn't covered up enough. And it kind of was getting to that point where I, you know, I said, you're being effing ridiculous. Uh, This is. I, I can't believe this is happening. And I said, maybe I shouldn't be talking to you if this is how you're going to treat patients in a medical setting. And that's when he hung up on me and kind of he was just getting really frustrated. And, and we were both frustrated in the situation from our point of view. But um, it was definitely getting a little more heated. And he ended the call.
And not to go into all of the details on what the appointment was for, but I know you you talked about this in in the story that was done at Global News too. This seemed like a pretty routine, what should have been a very quick appointment, simply to get a prescription refill, right? Exactly. You know, it's it's really hard to get a, uh, a medical appointment right now, and the app makes it super convenient just to get my prescription refilled, so I don't have to wait at the clinic for three hours. Um, and that's all it was supposed to be for. But, you know, there is a sense of trust you go into these medical appointments with. You're going in to see these medical professionals. You might be in a vulnerable situation. Uh, you might need to talk about something related to certain medications. And if you're met with this sort of hostility, it makes you feel dismissed and not like you're going to be heard or taken care of properly. Um, and, you know, since posting it, I've received well over 75 messages, mostly from women or those who identify as women saying in a medical setting, they have felt dismissed or, you know, thank you for saying this because this has definitely happened to me before um, where I've been told I was inappropriate or I was dismissed or not listened to. And you mentioned too, you talked to a friend who's a nurse in the medical field and she too thought that this was an odd response or that a doctor would refuse to see you. Yeah, after it happened, you know, I was kind of a little shaken and one of those did this just really happen and I uh, decided to head down the street to the dog park and ran into my friend who's a nurse and I was like, hey, this just happened. Like, am I crazy? Um, and she kind of shared the same sentiment as me that that should have never happened. She was shocked at how the doctor behaved. And then I came home and thought about it a little bit more. And on the Telus app, you can actually see the comments that the doctor has made. Um, and that's when I read as well that he had said my chest was too exposed. I was inappropriately dressed and he could not conduct a uh, appointment with someone dressed in such a manner. And that's kind of when I said, you know what, I, I, I can't, I need to say something. And I posted it on my social media and it kind of blew up from there. And just to clarify for people, maybe that haven't done telehealth or virtual health appointments. So if you're doing this through the, the TELUS Health app, you as the patient, you get to see if the doctor or what the comments are. And I would imagine vice versa. Yeah, so when you create your appointment, you know, you put in um, what the appointment is for, any concerns that you have you want to talk about, uh, you select a date and time that is available, and once you book the appointment, you find out who the physician is going to be. Uh, the physician calls you um, through via the app, it rings on your phone, you answer like a regular FaceTime call, and the physician will make notes on the um, their platform, which are then visible to you on the app afterwards so that you can kind of look back and reflect on what you talked about. Sometimes they may make recommendations or um, things like that. So it's, it's a great feature to have to go and look back on. But um, he, he did note in the in the notes that I was uh, too exposed and dressed inappropriately for him to conduct a medical appointment with someone dressed in such a manner. I know you've used the app before. Given what's happened or what happened during this appointment, will you use it again? Um, Telus Health has reached out and they were very um, apologetic about the situation. You know, they said this is not uh, something that should have happened. And I did receive um, a couple phone calls from them. They've actually booked me back in tomorrow with a different doctor. And I'm going to take the appointment, but I am definitely hesitant going forward if this is the best platform Um 
there are other apps that are available um, for these kind of easy appointments. So um, it's definitely something I'm going to look into and try a little bit harder to find that family doctor, which definitely is a very hard task here in Vancouver. Yeah, that's that's a whole other conversation, a whole other <laughs> challenge out there for sure. Um, in a statement, TELUS Health said, we are aware of the situation and take it seriously. We are conducting a full investigation. The well-being of our patients is our top priority. Does that help at least that that was their response to your concerns? Yeah, um, immediately after it happened, I did call their helpline um, just to report what had happened. And they were very sympathetic. As soon as I called, they told me how I could file that formal complaint. And then they did respond um, to me as well, letting me know that it is being looked into and I should have an update. Um, They said within 20 business days. And uh, then again, someone called me afterwards to speak to me. So it it did seem like they're taking it very seriously. And I appreciate that. Uh, We also reached out to the College of Physicians and Surgeons and just got a one line back saying there is no dress code. We do not uh, put in, there is no dress code out there for patients at doctor's appointments, be them virtual or in person. Uh, Have you also launched a complaint or are you going to follow up with the college? As of this morning, I have lodged a official written complaint with the college um, and I submitted, you know, documentation showing the photo that I was wearing since it's out out there on the internet, um, the screenshots from the telehealth app and a full recount of the, the incident. And and does that does it help as far as uh, like you said, you've been getting a lot of comments, a lot of messages from people uh, to, to find out if perhaps this has happened to other women? Yeah, I mean, it's just it's come to this place where I think as a woman or someone who identifies as woman um, going into a medical appointment, I felt dismissed before um, I've been kind of met with that mindset that I'm being hysterical or I'm overreacting when you tell them something is wrong. Um, You know, people look at you if you have tattoos or piercings and question your life choices and kind of put those prejudgments on you. And that was some of the other comments I received. And so just, just being someone who identifies as a woman and having had these things happen before, it's kind of something where I said enough is enough. I just, I just need to say something. And it was meant to just be a social media rant, but um, the feedback and, comments that I got kind of made it seem like it's more than just a one-off experience for me. It's a lot of women have experienced this across the country. And I I know this is a hypothetical. There's no way that that we would know the answer to this, but I'm wondering if this crossed your mind because this crossed my mind when I read your story and read up on some of the background that I'm so curious if a man showed up for a virtual telehealth, a virtual doctor's appointment wearing either a, a small tank top or no shirt at all. I am very curious if it's ever happened that a man has been told, oh, please cover up, put a shirt on. I can't, I can't do a prescription refill or any type of medical appointment with you looking that way. Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely a hypothetical, but um, I, I, I do wonder, even if someone who has a smaller chest size had shown up wearing a tank top uh, or something that appeared to look like a tank top on FaceTime as my sports bra did, if they would have been met with the same type of attitude, um, it definitely feels like there's some sort of double standard that probably would have happened. But like you said, it's a hypothetical and we can't say for sure. Uh, I know, uh, unfortunately, with online comments, there's always uh, vitriol. There's always uh, people that say uh, things that are are uh, not pleasant, to say the least. Uh, hopefully you uh, aren't, aren't paying a lot of attention uh, attention to those. But are you are you glad with your decision that you came forward to, to shine a light to make sure people know about this? 
given the community of um, mostly those who identify as women, but male allies as well, standing behind me saying, you know, this shouldn't have never happened. I'm glad you spoke out. Um, this is completely inappropriate. It, I, I'm not paying attention to the trolls and I'm happy with my decision. Um, I, like I said, I felt dismissed as a woman before entering into a medical appointment um, and many other women have. And so it's kind of just that reminder that you are your own advocate and you are an advocate for your, your health um, and well-being as, and you deserve to be treated with respect no matter the environment. And so the only person who's going to be able to stand up for you is yourself in some of these situations and you have every right to. All right, Carly, thank you for doing this and for joining us to talk more about this today. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Jill. Well, the throne speech at the legislature just getting underway. We had a bit of a preview earlier on in the program, and we'll bring you the highlights as they are announced this afternoon. We were talking to Richard Zussman about this, though, and he talked about how it's expected big picture things and how B.C. is going to work its way out of the pandemic and the economic recovery that is expected over the next several months. Well, what does that mean when we're talking about tourism? Walt Judas is the CEO of the Tourism Industry. Association of BC, and he's on the line with us now. Thanks so much for taking some time. Thanks for having me, Jill. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. What do you think the industry needs, or what will you be looking for as far as ways to really get that economic recovery moving forward? Well, the throne speech is important, of course, and we know that it sets the tone for what government plans to do in the coming year. But I think for us, more importantly, we're looking at the budget in a couple of weeks' time to see where the province decides to make its investments, particularly related to the tourism sector. We know they are going to invest in health care and education, affordable housing, the opioid crisis, workforce reconciliation. But we, in our role, provided a submission to the province some time ago to help inform the 10-year economic strategy that they had been consulting multiple sectors on uh, over the course of several months last year. And some of the things that we talked about included um, necessities for the tourism sector to recover. So, for example, the creation of new partnerships with Indigenous, Indigenous groups to build tourism products and to bolster the path to reconciliation. We talked about identifying and then promoting environmentally friendly visitor experiences We looked at improvements to current infrastructure, things like highways and regional airports, ferry terminals, as well as the development of new and unique tourism amenities. And I think the improvements to current infrastructure is particularly important now for our sector after what happened last year to so many places around the province from a crisis perspective. Notwithstanding the pandemic, of course, we dealt with the wildfire situation, which really damaged a lot of infrastructure and a lot of individual businesses. We dealt with the atmospheric river in the fall. And of course, uh, the damage that we saw there significantly impacted tourism operators, not only in the lower mainland, but throughout the interior. And that also had a big impact on, uh, on supply chain. So infrastructure is a big one for us and also an investment we think is necessary to prepare our sector and, of course, the province in general for future crises to come, whether it's a pandemic or other natural disasters. That has to be really part of the equation. 
Do you see a shift as well or looking ahead to when there will be a push for more international travel and the barriers to that are brought down? We certainly hope so. And I know there is a lot of discussion amongst all of the tourism ministers across the country from every province and territory Together with the federal government, our tourism minister co-chairs a committee with the federal minister. They've been talking about those very things. When do we put an end to things like PCR tests for people arriving here? When do we allow uh, people to forego a PCR test pre-departure from their destination? How do we encourage more visitor travel to our country and to our province in particular, what kind of marketing investments do we need to make and when do we need to make them? But there are also some barriers that we still have to overcome. And we recognize that we're still in the middle of a pandemic and we have science to rely on. But capacity restrictions now are hampering things like meetings and events, which is a huge sector that it's for all intents and purposes been shut down since the start of the pandemic. Yes, we've had smaller meetings or half-capacity meetings, but we can't open them up to the international market like we have been able to do in years previous. The cruise sector also still needs a lot of help, and, and people also need to have a sense of confidence that it's okay to travel. So as we see restrictions lifted here, hopefully more of those restrictions next week and in other provinces and certainly in other countries, that will help to build that confidence that we need to to uh, obtain to allow people to travel again. And when you mentioned those PCR tests, the entry requirement, uh, we were talking about this on the show yesterday. Does Canada, do you think, does it run the risk of, well, at the, the same time, we want to be safe and reopen in a safe way, but with other G7 countries dropping these tests, does Canada run the risk of falling behind? Absolutely. No question. The competition is fierce. People want to get going again. And so as people are looking to travel again, those countries that are a bit more open are prepared to spend some some serious dollars in trying to attract those visitors. And we're not quite in that position yet, or at least we still have some barriers in place. And look, we are all for health and safety protocols. We think they need to be in place. And if that means mask mandates or vaccine passports continue for a while longer, so be it. But the PCR test doesn't make sense, especially the dual PCR test, when you've already been fully vaccinated and you've had the booster. There's probably no more protection than you can offer. And so in that case, perhaps the easing of those rules will allow more people to want to visit Canada or at least be compelled to visit Canada and British Columbia, and we'll start to see the resumption of the international visitation that we so desperately need. And what are the numbers like as far as international travel? I mean, I know it's nothing like it was pre-pandemic, and you mentioned conventions and looking at getting that back as well. Have we seen any kind of spring back or people that uh, an increase in travel? Well, certainly we saw it more towards last summer and into the fall. But uh, as we headed into the winter months, of course, so naturally that that travel wanes a bit. And then when you layer on the restrictions that I mentioned earlier, that still is a barrier, especially people who are wanting to come here now for a ski vacation. Once you start totaling the costs of of, uh, all of the tests, that has proven to be somewhat of a barrier. But there are other limitations as well. We don't have the same volume of lift 
that we previously had. There are not as many airlines with direct flights to Canada and to British Columbia as there were previously. That's slowly starting to build. We are seeing uh, some international visitation to be sure, but not anywhere close to the volumes that we've seen in previous years. And it will take a while to build that back. And you also mentioned talking about reconciliation, talking about weather events as well that that play a toll. Do you think that will become then part uh, or more kind of ingrained in the travel industry as far as uh, taking note of that and making sure it is kind of more sensitive and, and, and done in a way that's not harmful to the environment? No question. I think we've got uh, a tremendous opportunity as a sector to move forward and, and work with Indigenous nations around the province uh, on the reconciliation side to build the kind of environmentally friendly tourism products that people want to consume, to find better ways to use technology to, mo- to be more environmentally sensitive There's already a lot of work being done in electrifying our highway system and encouraging people to uh, use more sustainable modes of transportation. Uh, Companies like Harbour Air are moving in that direction, BC Ferries, etc. And working in conjunction with the Indigenous peoples and their knowledge uh, on the landscape to ensure that we are treading lightly and leaving a place better than we found it and working together to ensure that we're protecting not only the environment, but all of those that are within the environment, whether it's animals, people and otherwise. And Indigenous, um, we have a a strong relationship with Indigenous community, with Indigenous Tourism BC, but that's a sector that's been particularly hard hit during the pandemic. And we have to find the ways and means to build back together with them for new products and experiences that allow us to welcome people from all over the world and do it in a more sustainable way and a, and a productive way and in a way that benefits everyone. And just quickly on the, the budget, when it's revealed later this month, is there anything specific that you'll be looking for from that? Well, I mentioned a few of the things, and I think that, um, you know, we're looking to the province to work in partnership on trying to rebuild our workforce. We are, as many other sectors, just devastated by the lack of people that uh, we have access to to be able to work in our sector. We've lost a lot of folks during the pandemic. These were skilled and unskilled workers that are needed to sustain business operations. How do we either get them back into our workforce or how do we attract new people to consider a career in tourism, not just a job in tourism, but a long-term career that that can afford people a decent living, that can allow them to move up to uh, to different jobs and, and kind of climb the career ladder. Those are things that we're looking for from the province, plus perhaps um, in further investments in marketing through the likes of Indigenous Tourism BC and Destination BC, to allow us to rebuild some of the traffic that we desperately need. And then there are destination development things. I mentioned earlier investment in infrastructure, but it's also even investing in a ubiquitous Wi-Fi system throughout the province, particularly for remote and rural communities and indigenous communities where they can't, they don't have access to their customer, the people that want to visit or the information 
that they need. So those are some things that we're looking for in the budget. All right. Well, Walt Judas, thanks so much for joining us today to talk more about this. And I'm sure we will talk to you soon. But thank you so much. Thank you, Joe.